This is Bedside, a podcast series on a mission to debunk sex. I'm your host, Tatiana, and each week we'll uncover stories, ideas, routines, and expert information to help guide you on your ever-evolving journey of good sex. We believe that through democratizing sexual wellness, we can shift cultural taboos and make way for authentic and limitless access to pleasure, joy, and connection to the body. On today's episode, I chat with adolescent experience strategist, Nicole Awar. Nicole's work is rooted in empowerment, as she mentors middle schoolers, high schoolers, and individuals in their college years with the tools to navigate transitional experiences. As a self-proclaimed people person and strength finder, Nicole helps young adults to discern their own tools and resources to navigate the ins and outs of coming of age. She assists those who she works with to become leaders among their peers, making them fearless to voice their values, worth, and authenticity. Needless to say, Nicole has impacted the lives of young adults tremendously. On this episode, Nicole shares with Bedside her own experience of, quote, success, sharing her story as a first-generation African-American having moved to the U.S. at six years old, and the knowledge behind race, identity, and community, and how they stand as integral pillars to her work. As we span topics surrounding our educational systems, privilege, racism, success, joy, and self-worth, this is a timely conversation you don't want to miss. Let's get started. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, this is great. So I would just love for you to tell me a little bit about yourself. What do you do currently and kind of what was it like growing up? Yeah, so I can start with what I'm doing currently because it's kind of like a mixed bag. So right now I work as an um, associate project manager for a clinical software company which is a very like niche area. And uh, my hopes are to go to medical school. So I'll be applying next June. And I graduated last May. And I just knew that I wanted to have what I call like a period of discernment to figure out if medicine is for me, but also like what my contribution is going to be and who I am outside of medicine. Because a lot of times when you're um, a pre-med student, everything you do is centered around getting to medical school and surviving medical school. And I felt like there were so many other um, passions I had, so many other things that I wanted to explore that I hadn't given myself the time to do because I was so focused on this one goal. So during this time, I decided that like I didn't want to have a job that was only focused on being in a lab or research. So that's when I started looking at different jobs and I found clinical software, which is great because it's a different aspect of medicine, so to speak, and it gives me a totally different perspective. And I'm also working for a really progressive company that really encourages us to find passions outside of work. So that's when I started um, kind of restructuring and really taking it seriously, being a mentor to other students. Because I found that not only during my senior year, but after graduating, a lot of my um, former classmates and people who I had even just seen in the halls and stuff, I kept in touch with them and they would 
ask me about, you know, academic decisions that they were going to make, but also like very personal decisions because I had given a TED talk called Permission to be Flawed. Oh, what? Yeah. You gave a TED talk. I did. And <laughs> it, it came from that pressure that I had felt after graduating when I had no idea what I was doing. And I feel like so many students can relate to that free fall when you feel like you leave this bubble of college that's so structured and you know that next semester I'm going to do this or next year is going to be this. And now the world is your oyster for better or for worse, right? So you're yes. trying to figure out what's next. And I had so many um, other graduates who were either going to medical school or starting to work. And I had just made that decision that I'm not going to go to medical school right now. So I felt like I was almost isolated in my anxieties because I'm thinking, oh my gosh, all these people have it all together and I don't. And I remember one day I was talking to one of my friends who is in his second year at Penn Medicine now. And he was like, what are you doing? And I just said, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. And it was such a liberating feeling because at first, you know, I didn't know it was on the other side of that. I don't know. I didn't know if that vulnerability would be met with rejection or, you know, if he would kind of be confused, especially because I had accomplished so much in college. I put that pressure on myself to like keep that momentum going. So he was just like, you know what? I don't know either. Like, <laughs> I know what I'm doing in school, but, you know, I'm in this relationship and, you know, she's moving away and I don't know what's going to happen there. I talked to some people who had started working and they're like, I don't love what I do. I majored in this, but where do I go from here? So there were so many very authentic and vulnerable conversations I was having with people. And it really, you know, rooted us in that solidarity that none of us have it all together. And that's what the topic of my TED Talk was about. And that's what kind of drew other students to me because they were like, you know, she was brave enough to talk about this. So let me go and talk to her about what I'm experiencing. And I'm the type of person who if you come to me, I'm not just going to give you like flippant advice. I'm going to be like, OK, here's our game plan. <laughs> Here are your strengths. Here are your weaknesses. You know, right. how do we utilize the best that you have? And working in project management it also allowed me to hone those skills in another way in a place that I was even more passionate about, which is empowering other people. So that's when I started my work as an adolescent experience strategist, because a lot of the reoccurring themes that people would come to me for advice for were stuff that, you know, are universal to stuff we've gone through, whether it's, um, adulthood and kind of transitioning into having more of that independence but not really knowing how to like wield this new like weapon or privilege of making your own choices and we've all been there you know so even from the time I was in middle school I could reach back to those experiences and kind of use them to a reinforce to these other students that you're not alone in how you feel but also finding what was unique to their own experience and encouraging them that you have your own kind of path to carve out so in that way like it's not a to-do list I don't like give people a how-to or a road plan but it's kind of a way of empowering them with the tools to seek out what they need that's unique to what they're experiencing and I find it so rewarding because 
I've actually also started learning from people myself, you know, and it's it's a really organic and mutually beneficial relationship with these students that I'm kind of coming alongside this experience of adolescence, which was tumultuous for me. Yeah. And kind of also encouraging them to know that it's challenging, it's new, it's uncharted territories, but it doesn't have to have that angst and a lot of that um, headlessness and nervousness and anxiety that goes along with it. You can still be empowered even in these situations that you haven't been in before. I love this so much because I find that and even in your story, you're like, mm -hmm. I almost am like box checking my way to medical school. Mm -hmm. And I know that like, I think in Michelle Obama's book, she talks about a lot about in becoming, she talks a lot yes. about how she was a box checker. And I think that we're set up in this system with like mentors and guiders and usually in, in an academic environment mm -hmm. that are telling us what to do. And then we're kind of left in the dust once we've like left that system, mm -hmm. but we've been brought up to kind of have these guiders and leaders so I love that you have almost tapped into that beyond academia absolutely so my question for you when you say you're working with students are they like high schoolers are they in college or are they kind of post-grad looking at even higher level education yeah so it's a huge array just mm -hmm. because adolescence is I believe like 13 to 21 yeah so I worked with um, a sixth grader who was going through a really difficult family period on top of academic challenges where he almost didn't um, like move on to the seventh grade so working with him initially was academic but then I realized that a lot of it was him not having the confidence in himself and then also navigating the added pressures of, you know, finding a social group for yourself and trying to fit into that group. Also trying to verbalize what you're experiencing, like within your family and all of these other facets. So I worked with him by using academics as a vehicle to explore these other pain points that he was going through. Yes. And then I've worked with um, high school students who were going through like certain mental health challenges and encouraging them to not only, you know, seek out those resources, but also advocate for themselves and kind of draw from my own experiences in high school. And then, of course, college students who are navigating this completely new experience of trying to figure out well, actually, I would say what they think is trying to figure out what you're going to do for the rest of your life, right. which is actually not the perspective <laughs> that you should have at all. So kind of unlearning what you were talking about, that very rigid and that linear structure. Mm -hmm. So I've had the pleasure of working with everyone from a 13-year-old boy to um, a recent college graduate. Wow. I love that so much. And just that unlearning, too, that you bring up is really core I think that there's so much of this system that we have just been like guided through blindly mm -hmm. and like we need someone in our lives to tell us that like we don't have to follow those like quote-unquote rules exactly that must be so liberating for the people you work with oh it is it's like you can you can see their demeanor change you can see them really mm -hmm. become empowered and I think the, the best thing about um, particularly working with the 13 year old boy is that there were a lot of things that 
I didn't have to teach him academically, that he learned on his own as we kind of addressed other things that were overwhelming him. So in, in the beginning, um, we were tasked with the challenge of getting through all of a sixth grade curriculum in six weeks. Wow. And it's overwhelming for anyone, let alone a young boy. And by the time we were finishing, he was coming to me and he's like, all right, Nicole, this is the plan that I have for every day that I'm going to complete my assignments. And I didn't have to teach him how to take initiative. I think there's so many of these um, subjective and not rigid properties or these traits that people you know want to instill in their kids like fortitude resilience hard work Mm -hmm. that you can't teach they they learn that on their own when you give them the room to do so so just listening to him and also being consistently there when he didn't want to do something or you know he stumbled just having that consistent voice it's like this is your room to fail to succeed to do all of that really strengthened his own traits that he already had, but he just had to forge on his own. I couldn't teach it to him. So that was also a revelation for me that a lot of times I was seeking an answer. Like, how many books can I read in order to understand myself? And I just needed to give myself the room to explore these experiences, to go and seek out new experiences so that I can kind of tap into what's already there and forge what's already present within you. But when you're always seeking to fit another person's narrative, you can never make your own. So in that way, I kind of learned from these students while I was helping them how to explore that within myself also. The idea that you're giving someone the space and permission to fail is exactly what almost our culture doesn't allow us to do. Um, And failure is so important. And I think that when I look at the education system, we are set up to like only succeed. And, and I look at that almost in when you look at like an honors trajectory versus what is it like a a standard or I forgot what remedial remedial yeah they they kind of put you you know you'll be picked to go into honors math class and if you don't and you're behind you you miss that boat right Absolutely. and i think that has a lot to do with socioeconomics Absolutely. uh the the distilling the background of all that is really is really loaded um but to stand as a mentor and someone as an uplifter is so integral to bring those people back on track because they are more than capable of doing so. Yes, absolutely. And to the point, you know, you brought up a great point that I would love to expand on with um, the trajectory and the predetermined path that we're on because I experienced that so rigidly in the structure that I had in my my own high school experience. And also the fact that the higher up you went with um, the academic curriculum, the less diversity there was Mm. even within our school itself. So that also created a very unique set of challenges trying to navigate that academic discipline that you needed, but also being in a space that was isolating in a way as Mm -hmm. well as very academically intense. And that's why I am hoping to expand and speak with more students of color whether they're black, Latino, even Asian, because these are spaces that 
especially for immigrant children, our parents want the excellence of that academics, especially when, you know, they, they want us to go to private school. They want us to maybe even go to an Ivy League school. But one consideration that isn't given the weight that it deserves is that lack of diversity and how it can be psychologically damaging mm -hmm. if it's not handled with care and it's not reinforced somewhere else. If you're not having those connections and you're not given that space to fail, so to speak, because you are the one black student or you, won the, you are the one Asian student and you're not given the privilege of individuality when you have to either fight against an archetype or you're trying to reinforce um, certain lessons that your parents tell us at home. I remember my parents telling me that, you know, I've, I've had experiences where maybe a teacher didn't give me the credit I deserved or was a little bit more surprised than usual that I was able to succeed. And my parents always saying that, you know, it doesn't matter how it makes you feel because at the end of the day, like you just have to be academically excellent and nobody can argue against that. But when you always feel like you have this armor up, you always have to be on that defensive and you have to almost police yourself. Mm -hmm. It doesn't allow you that vulnerability to really explore other aspects of your life, you know, to have those crushes in high school and to um, reach out to other people in your friend group when you feel like you're always under the microscope in a way. And I want to be able to, I mean, I can't change the school systems, you know, and the socioeconomic disparities, but at least be a, a guiding hand and also an example to other students who have been in that situation that I've been there and I understand how it is now, but you know, when you go to college, that is also a determining factor for you because that's the reason why I chose to go to the university I went to as opposed to another one which may have offered me a little bit more scholarship money because I didn't want to be in a place that had no diversity and also giving those tools to parents especially immigrant parents to understand and help their child articulate these feelings you know that I didn't know when I was in high school that I wanted to explain to my parents why it was more important to me to feel that sadness or have that emotional space to kind of unpack and let myself feel rather than only be focused on the objective of, well, I'm going to be academically successful because you also have to be mentally sound and you have to be mentally strong mm -hmm. and having that chipped away and eroded at in these spaces also does something to your child that hinders their long-term success just as a person so it's important to me not only to be there for students but also to help parents have more of those resources that they need to also come alongside their children as well yes and i think you bring up a really good point that you brought up a minute ago, which is that you need to be able to see yourself in a, in a position of success, in a position that is, is thriving, and to be in a space that doesn't have a woman of color that's succeeding in a certain field or, um, you know, not seeing yourself and being able to, like, visualize that that is a possibility 
is just hindering within itself. Definitely. And also seeing those people as the flawed, multifaceted individuals as they are. I feel like we tend to kind of deify those people. Mm -hmm. And that's why I loved Michelle Obama's book, because she didn't just talk about her triumphs. She talked about her interpersonal struggles. She talked about, you know, challenges that she faced emotionally, times where she faltered or questioned herself. And that's something that I really try to emphasize with students that I work with because it's so easy for people to see you and think, you know, that your success is distant from them, that, oh, she, again, bringing it back to that talk, you know, she has it all together, you know, she must have been great at college or didn't falter at all. And that's why it challenges me even more to be authentic to my flaws as much as my strengths, that you don't have to be perfect to be successful and you're allowed to stumble. You're also allowed to be a work in progress and still be considered successful because success is not a destination. It's always a process and it's always a journey and really kind of reshaping students, especially students of colors, relationship with success and what that means yes and and I'm curious kind of based off that like tell me about like let's backtrack here maybe you can explain this from your personal experience Mm -hmm. what family dynamics look like for families of color tell me what that looks like and what your learnings are at home versus in school. Yeah, so that is a very it's interesting a question. <laughs> it is, but it's it's so great to explore because the best part that I can start by saying is what I learned um, from one of my professors in college is that there is no monolithic black experience, and it put me in this very nuanced intersection as not only an African immigrant, but as a Kenyan immigrant specifically, because there are differences between East Africans and West Africans culturally versus um, Caribbeans versus African Americans. And occupying this very delicate balance as an African and being at home and having the cultural values instilled in me, but also having such a strong Western influence that I embrace that has also helped me kind of change my family dynamic and also the difference between the African-American influence and then also like the wider mainstream, um, I guess, wider influence as well. And I would start by also talking about the example of like, let's say even like sleepovers, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a very interesting challenge in allowing my parents to let me go on a sleepover because from their African parent example, they're like, you have a bed at home. You know, why do you (laughs) want to go sleep in another person's bed? Right. I don't understand that. But then being able to voice that, you know, well, mom, like this is a part of socialization. Yeah. Saying that at eight years old was really me. And I was like, mom, I want to spend this time with my friends. And Fast forward to high school, things like prom. I went to a Catholic high school where you were mandated to have a date to go to prom. And dating in the African context is very loaded because dating is oftentimes intentional and very 
intertwined with marriage, which is also very intertwined with a sexual relationship. And that was a very challenging thing to navigate, you know, because Western society views, you know, dates and prom as a very um, innocent and also coming of age time. And I didn't know how to gain the permission to be in that space and to celebrate with my friends because it also meant having a conversation with my parents about sex, right. which is not had. It's just, <laughs> you don't, you don't have it. You don't talk about it. It's not a thing. And it also kind of helped me realize that I didn't want to have that tenseness. I didn't want to have these taboo topics that not only did I feel like I couldn't talk about, but that it was bad or unacceptable to talk about. Because when you're thrust into, let's say, college, and your parents aren't there to strictly reinforce that, no, you can't spend time with this boy alone, or you can't do this, you now have to navigate that yourself. And there's a lot of different influences, not only the Western influences of exploring sexuality in a healthy way but also certain hypersexualized messages that we get mm -hmm. and I had a very um, interesting conversation with some of my African classmates who some went to college had girlfriends had long-term relationships that they never told their parents about they might have had positive experiences that they couldn't share with their moms or they might have had very negative and traumatic experiences, um, even varying to the point of sexual assault, that they didn't feel comfortable speaking to their parents about because just the word sex was wrong. It was uncomfortable. So that was, and still is, a very interesting experience to kind of hone in on because I've slowly been changing my family dynamic not sp just with that particular topic, but also with um, allowing me to be not just the way that they were growing up, but also helping them come to terms and accept and also embrace the fact that I am African American and there's certain cultural differences that I have that have shaped my personal philosophies that are different than theirs, but they've also learned from themselves. For example, um, we were never a very affectionate family growing up, you know. I, I knew my parents loved me because of all the sacrifices that they made for me, you know, all the encouragement they always gave to me. But now seeing my mom with her, or her grandchildren as a grandparent and saying, you know, I love you and giving them all these hugs and these kisses and being very physically affectionate, did come from me introducing that and seeing other kids, you know, do that at school and say, I want to I want to have that type of relationship with my parents and kind of initiate that. So it's been a very interesting role being the baby of the family, but also kind of charting the course in a different way and introducing these new ideas, these new dynamics into our family that I've seen take hold in a really beneficial way. I love that so much, and that must be some really challenging work as well. 
Definitely. Um, it definitely didn't come without its uh its its pains, its growing pains. It's growing pains. Yes. <laughs> Being in isolation and not having that core sense of belonging almost seems like this like recipe. It's kind of like that fundamental layer of the cake that you really just need that foundation. You need that support, you need that circle. So what are those pillars that you look for when you're working with individuals that you feel are needed to kind of get to that next step? Yeah, I'm to your point, you brought up a great point that adolescence is a very critical period where we're no longer leaning on our identity as part of our family, but also as part of a social group. So it's very important not only for adolescents to have friends, but to also have healthy and authentic relationships with their peers. And that, I think, is an important pillar because it allows you to have not, not necessarily a confidant, but also just someone you can relate to at your age. And I think that even though I am 22, a lot of them do see me as one of their peers so advice or encouragement that comes from someone who's in the same space as you resonates more strongly than someone who you feel, you know, might not relate to you anymore. Even if your parents do have experiences that they can relate to and say, when I was your age, mm-hmm. I was their age five minutes ago. <laughs> so I, I, I know what yeah. you're going through. And I think that relatability is really important because you are seeking those bonds with people who are in your age group with your age mates and also creating that sense of um well kind of instilling that lesson that you don't need to have a huge group of friends because social pressure and peer pressure is very real and growing up It's not that I had 22 friends or I didn't need everyone to like me because I had my two friends who were my social backbone. Yes. And I had that social security that I have these two people. So everyone may not like me for me, but I have two people who do. Mm -hmm. And having that perspective helped me. So I encourage students to seek out people who have shared interests with them, who have things in common with them, so that they can explore who they are. And it gives them that space to grow with people who accept them for who they are authentically and not feel like a lot of teenagers do, that they have to change who they are to fit a mold or to fit into the group and everything else follows suit so academically when you feel psychologically sound you can explore other things and interestingly enough um, I think it was either Facebook or Google found that the number one factor or determinant of productivity in the workplace was psychological safety And if you feel safe in your workplace, everything else will follow suit. And I learned that and I apply that to students that I work with, that if you feel psychologically safe, 
not only at home, but also among your peers, you can stand up to peer pressure. You can resist the urge. You can also navigate mental health challenges, which are psychologically jarring Yes. when you know that I have a community. And that's one of the reasons why I'm very thankful for the balance that I had with my upbringing, because community is very, very emphasized within Kenyan culture, not only among our family, but the fact that anyone who you welcome into your life can be, is now your aunt, is now your uncle. You know, I don't know who my real aunts or uncles by (laughs) blood are because my mom meets you at Bank of America, she'll invite you over for Thanksgiving and now like you're my aunt forever. (laughs) And a part of that creates this solidarity that does emphasize that psychological safety. And I want to build that and kind of translate that more into Western and mainstream dynamics that it's not just the individual and it's not just the nuclear family unit. You can rely on your friends as not just people you socialize with, but people you lean on. Mm -hmm. And that's something a lot of people realize, you know, maybe in college or maybe after college when things get real and you start to experience and forge those um, relationships with people. But I want to start that even earlier and have that sense of authentic friendship because not only can you lean on others, but others can rely on you. And when you feel a sense of independence but also a responsibility to other people that you're larger than just yourself it widens that safety net because you know that you're part of something bigger than you yes I would really this is incredible and I think that that is a really sweet spot that you've kind of determined here I would love to hear more, like unpack even more what this psychological safety looks like. We've almost defined that community is integral here, but kind of off the top of my head, I've never heard this term before, but it's, I'm thinking like, wow, like there almost needs to be, like there's confidence behind that. There's trust behind that. So what do you have for individuals who are not quite there yet? Like you almost have to show them what that looks like. Yeah, and I think it starts with vulnerability. And vulnerability is terrifying, yes. but it pays off. Right, when you were saying that they to get into new spaces that are authentically you, you have to take a leap. You do, you do. And that's scary. And we always especially. think of worst case scenario, yeah. <laughs> but you also have to think of best case scenario. Yes. Um, and nine times out of ten, human beings will resonate with you when you're vulnerable, especially your peers. And um, that's why, you know, I put myself out there and I tell people, yeah, I've done that. I've, I've talked to my friends and said that I graduated with a 3-4 GPA and I was so embarrassed by it because in pre-med world, everybody has a 3-8, yep. even when they don't. And it was a huge point of reckoning for me because when I said it, even other people who, you know, might have had higher grades were like, wow, I, I respect that. Yeah. And I hear you. And psychological safety being rooted in authenticity also helps you see the best in other people. Because a lot of times, not everyone is out to get you. 
a lot of people yearn for that authenticity as well. And they're too scared to take that leap. They don't want to be the first one. But once you make that leap, other people will. Mm -hmm. And other people listening might be thinking the same thing. So if we're all sitting in these pockets, it doesn't do us any favors because we're all sitting in our respective corners wishing that someone would be vulnerable with us so we can be vulnerable with them. And a part of that that we were talking about earlier is not being afraid of failure. That if you put yourself out there and you are vulnerable and it doesn't go your way, it doesn't mean that you are flawed it doesn't mean that you're deficient it just means that well maybe that's not the person you're going to connect with and that's okay right and that also builds that psychological resilience which yields psychological safety that you don't necessarily rely on the validation of others it just strengthens you but it's irrespective of other people it's just a part of who you are and exploring every aspect of that, the failures and the aspects of it that are triumphant, allows you to reinforce that regardless. And then it takes away, you know, even the vocabulary that you failed at it. You didn't fail. It's not good or bad. It's just an experience. And you're either going to learn from it in a positive way or you're going to learn from this negative experience for next time. But either way, it does establish that psychological safety yes and kind of riffing off that too I find that even in my own experience beyond adolescence that sometimes you need to be that person if you're feeling you need comfort if you're feeling that you need um, confidence if you're feeling that you need someone to talk to that you actually might need to like make that action step towards someone else to receive that. Sometimes the, the, the reception of that, that thing that you're missing requires you to actually go out there and offer yourself to other people. Absolutely. And interestingly enough, I feel that, you know, you, when you identify something is when you can readily address it. And for me, a turning point was knowing that this had a word and that it's called pluralistic ignorance. And when everyone is experiencing the same thing but doesn't vocalize it, all of us are experiencing it in isolation when we don't have to. Right. And it is universal. And when I knew that there was a word for this feeling, I could see it in a room. Right. I knew <laughs> it was happening. Right. Especially, you know, when even at work, there'll be meetings and then um, the project manager will say, all right, um, I think this is going to work. I think we can go with this build. And we're all looking at each other with this understanding that there's a gaping flaw that no one wants to address. Right. And if she says, does everyone understand um, this flow chart? And we're all looking at each other that, you know, signifying that we don't. And now I know that we don't. And I can be brave enough to say, I need a clarification. Yeah. I don't know what's happening. And that's okay. Right. And then other people, you know, you see that sigh of relief. Mm -hmm. So some of these things um, are not going to be verbal, but there's a lot of nonverbal cues that you do pick up on and that kind of encourage you to be that first one and that people will, sometimes they might not initially vocalize that and say, oh, I agree. But you can tell, you know, whether it's a sigh of relief or whether it's um, 
eye, eye contact or active engagement that lets you know that they're willing to listen to what you have to say because they connect to it. Mm -hmm. That is emphasized in different ways that allows you to remember that it's not just you. And it starts with understanding and recognizing that it's happening and there's a word for it. You're yes. not, crazy. <laughs> not crazy. It's not in your head. You're not, and you're not the only one. I am really blown away by not only your intelligence and wisdom in this kind of very hyper-specific field, which almost feels like, obviously, there's people who have been doing this, but it feels like you're navigating kind of something new here, yeah. like a completely new space. So I want to almost backtrack here a little bit and understand that like you're coming from a place of you're a woman of color and you're telling me the immense confidence that you have in these rooms that you know you and tell me if I'm wrong I don't know what your work environment is like but where have you gotten this confidence to speak this way when culturally um, women of color are tend to be put down. Yeah, I, I thank you for that. I also think that it's interesting you say that because so many people have said that to me. And I, I think it comes from that very unique experience culturally that I've had because I came to this country when I was six years old. And that period, that like zero to six years is when a lot of who you are and the self-efficacy that you understand about yourself is culminated. So um, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of the doll test when um, psych psychologists... Is it with dolls that are colored? Yes. Okay, tell me more. I think I know about this vaguely. Yeah. So this was actually um, a test that was done by psychologists first in the 1950s, I believe, that was actually one of the cornerstones for the argument for Brown versus Board of Education, and then again reinforced um, and re replicated later in the 80s, where they asked white and black children between, I think, the ages of as early as two or three to five and six um, to ascribe certain qualities to dolls of different complexions. And not only did white uh, children ascribe positive and strong qualities to dolls that were white, the black children did too. Mm. So what does that say about their not only self-esteem, but their self-efficacy when they ascribe confidence and um, integrity? Which doll looks like it's the most truthful doll? Which one is the good doll towards the dolls that don't look like them. Mm -hmm. And it's something that starts so young that I believe it almost handicaps students of color at such a young age in this country that I didn't have. Because from the time I lived in Kenya, where, yes, there are tribal differences, but everyone looks the same, so to speak, almost, I never felt that I was less than, and it was never socially reinforced or conditioned in me um, subconsciously or intentionally. Wow. So I had a very interesting 
perspective about racism that even when I experienced it, not only from other students, but what's most damaging is from teachers at a young age, I didn't look at it as what's wrong with me. I looked at it as what's wrong with these people who don't see how great I am? What is going on with them that they feel the need to ascribe these negative things to me? So I looked at it as a condition of the other person, a condition of the perpetrator, as opposed to a self-reflection of me. Correct. And that is something that I really credit my confidence to because it's not that I've been immune to racism in any way, especially um, in middle school. During those formative adolescent years, when you are in a space where um, you're navigating these different social interactions that are, you know, sprinkled with different instances of racism, it does take a toll on you, but it never changed who I saw myself as. And that's why I was able to overcome those instances. And I wasn't someone who internalized those instances. Also instances of colorism within the black community. Mm -hmm. I have um, a very varied complexion of people within my family and my parents being educators um, and also Pan-Africans, they instilled in us the importance of empowering all black people everywhere. So there wasn't a sense of um, lighter skin being associated with those, same as the doll test, with those other qualities or other traits that are good versus bad. So when I did have those experiences of having colorism inflicted on me, I was able to navigate through them and eventually work my way around them because it's not something that I very readily received as opposed to um, the multi-sided attack on the psyche of a lot of African-American females Mm -hmm. where you not only are dealing with um, racism, but you're dealing with colorism. And it's that compounding assault on you as an individual when not only do people who not look like you um, feel that they can ascribe certain traits to you or dictate your narrative, but you also feel undermined by the very people who are supposed to be for you and empowering you. So I feel very lucky to have had that period of a lack of racism and colorism in my life at such a formative age. And it gave me such a strong foundation that I was able to you know, bounce back through a lot of things that when I talk to some of my um, African-American friends, also some of my African friends who did not have that experience, it does take a toll on you that you have to unpack and you have to unlearn and it takes a lot of psychological fortitude Mm -hmm. to overcome and just I think the way that we also tokenize bodies black bodies especially women of color um is 
must have a tremendous effect on um, understanding of self because before you understand yourself, you've been prescribed a narrative. Yes. You've been prescribed um, qualities and identity ideologies. And so that, especially um, in transitioning to almost like the notion of sexual wellness too must be really confusing the way that black bodies have been so tokenized sexually absolutely Um, and you know that can have repercussions in the way that like one wants to prove themselves academically um and it kind of changes the focal point yes it does and it also is an unfair restriction that's given on you to explore every aspect of yourself as an individual which goes back to the point that we aren't a monolith and when we are tokenized when we are relegated to just being an archetype it robs you of that sense of individuality yes and it also doesn't allow you to exist in that variation that we are as human beings you know we don't live in this vacuum of mutual exclusivity you can be professional and you can still be outgoing and extroverted you can still be a sexual being and be as wholesome and as kind of worthy of the same level of respect and I think that it's something that all women deal with but particularly women of color even more mm-hmm. when you almost have to police yourself because I know that even growing up and developing physically earlier than some of my peers, it was almost my responsibility to navigate and manage how that was perceived, which I may be physically developed, but I'm still emotionally trying to transition into that phase. Yes. And when we are condemned or persecuted in a way for something that is a natural condition that we are going to all go through, it makes us punish ourselves and it doesn't give us the space that we need to explore these things in time so that leads to either a full embrace of this hypersexualization or it leads to this rigidity mm-hmm. that it's not something that I can ever explore it's not something that it's almost that you fight this sexual identity that you have because it's an all or nothing type of thing yes. I'm not just a sexual being but I, it's also a part of who I am and it's everyone's right to explore and embrace that aspect of themselves and it also makes you a very hyper aware and hyper conscious person because when you want to be vulnerable with people especially um, the aspect of interracial dating or dating in spaces that are predominantly white you are navigating this constant question of is this person dating or interested in me for me and because I'm this intriguing individual or is this a fetishization of who I am or am I just a novelty? And nobody wants to be the box that someone checks off. Nobody wants to 
um, be seen only in that way. And it's hard for black women in particular because there has been more license given to black men to date interracially than black women. And in that same space, there has been the same um, protest in a way from black women to not be sexualized by men in general, black men and white men and other men of color. So it's a very conflicting situation to be in, constantly having to be emotionally hyper aware mm -hmm. of how you move through these spaces and how people are perceiving you, which you have no control over, but we've been just prescribed or ascribed that duty of having to manage those nuances that really are not within our control, which is very emotionally exhausting. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess we are talking about beautiful failure here. And, and that's what I'm so inspired by about the work that you're doing is you're providing toolkits for individuals to almost prevent those circumstances yeah. and to give people the toolkits to be able to go into this world and understand like what and unlearn what has been so projected upon them. Yeah, definitely. And one thing that I also emphasize is that it's not a destination, it's a whole process. And a lot of times sexuality is seen as something that is almost a tool and people have such different perspectives that it's almost like a point of contention in a way, mm -hmm. as opposed to just being something that is a neutral facet of every human being. Right. Because you have so many voices influencing something that is so integral to who you are as, an, as a person that it makes you overwhelmed. And you don't know what voice to listen to. But really, the only voice that matters is yours. So the only thing that you can do is use the tools you have to make the most informed decision that you can. And you should never sell short your own intuition and your own insight. You are, yes, you're bringing up such an important point, which is that what we really should be focusing on is being able to like refine these tools and be able to like hone in on these skills and, and, and test the waters with them and fail with them and, and succeed with them and, and understand that that's the most reliable, trustworthy thing that you could ever have. That gut feeling is going to speak way before anything else. Definitely. As we're wrapping up here, I'm curious, I, we've had so many touch points, but is there anything that you feel like a message that you want to send out to maybe teenagers who are struggling? I know that we've, we've got some loaded conversations here um, and a lot that we uncovered, but is, do you have a takeaway or kind of a starting point for someone who wants to tap into their self more? I think the first, the most important thing I would say actually is to remember that your insight and your intuition is paramount. And I say that because I encourage them to seek out resources to empower themselves, but also remember your insight and your intuition because it'll, it will allow you to discern whether or not 
what you're reading or what you're listening to or if someone's experience is a applicable to you and if it serves you because there's so many voices that say different things in in all these spaces that you're navigating but just think about is this serving me and does this feel authentic to me and if so proceed with that resource if not there's more out there ships onto the sea there's a bunch of them and they're they're waiting for you to realize them. I love that so much. This has just been tremendously important and insightful, and I'm so happy that you've been here. So please tell us where we can connect with you and maybe where we could chat with you if people wanted to reach out. Definitely. Um, so the greatest way you could reach me is through my website, and that is NicoleAwarInsight.com. And that's my name, N-I-C-O-L-E-O-W-U-O-R, insight.com. Um, there's messaging available. You can get to know more about me. And I'm also on Instagram at Nicole Awar, just my name, over and over <laughs> again. Um, and I would love to connect with people. It's a gift of mine, but it's also a passion of mine. And it's going to be exciting to see who reaches out and what I can offer. Thank you for listening to the Bedside Podcast. If you liked this episode and want to follow along with similar stories and interviews, be sure to check out our Instagram at The Bedside and thebedside.co online. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. It's the best way you can support us and our good sex mission. Thank you for listening.